as you know, I, I decided that over these few weeks uh, leading up to our ceremony, I might use as a focus um, various teachers that have been important to me and actually are the foundation of, of transmission. And last week I spoke about my root ordination teacher, Blanche Hartman, and her uh, expression of vow and how important that is for us all. And today uh, I'd like to speak a bit about the, um, the other teacher who has been so uh, foundational, deeply foundational in the development of Apamada, um, Joko Beck. Once again, not just to speak about Joko, but to offer something that for our own inquiry but there's no way to speak about Joko really clearly for me without um, having Peg join me since she was Peg's teacher. And I only met Joko because of Peg. Uh, I had some contact with her, but um, Peg actually introduced us. Um, and so, uh, Jessica, if, if you'll put Peg on with me, great, thank you. Hi there. Hello. <laughs> and one of the things that I thought to bring, um, because it's the, the teaching that I wanted to offer, I mean, you and I could just sit and talk about stories forever. Um, but I thought it would be wonderful if you would share um, personally, you, you wrote about it in The Hidden Lamp, but that, that story uh, that was so arresting, <laughs> it's brief, but powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought it'd be better if you told it because it was uh, your lived experience. And since we're talking about what happens between mm -hmm. transmission, it was so important to her um, that we could do this between us, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the story that I wrote about, um, we were asked to write about either a contemporary or an ancient koan that involved a woman. And this, um, and this story that I, uh, that I had witnessed with Joko was the one that came to my mind. Uh, and it happened after one of her talks, one of her Dharma talks. And she would always have a question and answer um, session after a Dharma talk. And so this brash young man raised his hand and he said boldly, are you enlightened? And Joko said without hesitation, I hope I should never have such a thought. And she had this laughing twinkle in her eye that was so, uh, so characteristic of her. And it was just such a wonderful moment uh, that I, I never forgot it. Um, so that's, that's the koan I, I spoke about when I, in, my little, uh, in my little short piece for The Hidden Lamp. About what year might that have been around? It probably was maybe around 1991. Yeah. And when you heard that moment, what was the impact on you at, at that time? Delight. I mean, I was just delighted. I just, I, I just laughed out loud. <laughs> it, was, it was such a, 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 an appropriate and unexpected response. It was, it, it's always beautiful when the, um, it, we aspire to this. To, to respond in a way that is simple and direct and immediate, but totally 
turns the expectation table uh, yeah. not 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 to be cute to actually open the space that's right that much um, um there's um a, a part that i want to uh, to reflect on about this also while i still have you here just for a moment um one of the things that joko continued to the end was her sense of, of vitality and aliveness and immediacy and one of the last times that Peg and I were actually with her, uh, people came to sit and, uh, so, and we sat in the zendo as we would. And then one by one, she would see people for a practice discussion for Dogasan. And Peg and I were uh, left until last. You remember that? Oh, yeah. And, uh, and we were just following along like everybody else. And do you remember what she did to us at the end? Oh, she said, you're going to be in charge of the talk. Yeah, I mean, like in three minutes. In three minutes. We were going to go up and she's like, oh, oh uh, you you guys, you're going to do the talk. And Flint, you do that thing you do. They, they need to see that. And I said, you mean inquiry? He said, yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> so Peg and I are like, oh, talking okay. about, about <laughs> someone calling on you and saying you got to raise your hand and come forward. <laughs> it's precisely what she was asking. Um, Mm -hmm. Can we come forward uh, fully as ourselves uh, and offer something? Mm -hmm. There, <clears throat> I, I want to read a, one paragraph. It's really the last paragraph that you wrote, Peg. Mm -hmm. um, but it'll be interesting for you to hear it back, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then, then I'll go on and, and do some more things. And, but I want, and then if there's any more comments you want to make. But it's beautiful. I want everyone to hear it. And if you have any reflections on it. After, after much more commentary, um, Peg wrote, we live with a yearning for something always just out of reach. Without it, we would never come to practice in, in the first place. We have many ideas about our practice, about ourselves and about the world. Our cup is full. She had told the story of the Zen master filling the student's cup. Like every other inexperienced Zen student, I was striving to be awakened. You're reflecting on your time with Shoko. I wanted to be a light in the world, have the genuine insight, true compassion, and profound wisdom to offer something truly needed, care for others that was real care. There's nothing wrong with a heartfelt aspiration for awakening, of course, but I hope I should never have such a thought. The ringing clarity of her words illuminates our secret agenda, our constant negotiations, calculations, and manipulations, our efforts to finesse life as it is, and reveals our hidden longing for enlightenment as ultimate comfort, confirmation, achievement, or holiness. The demolition of this self-centered dream is the revelation of the true path. That's beautifully written. And it's those kinds of things that I think are worth maybe reflecting on a little further. Is there anything else, anything else you wanted to offer in reflection about Joko or your time with her? Uh, I really, really hope people will read the books that are the uh, captured essence of her talks. Um, the, new are, the new one is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, the new one has um, 
great introductory prefaces by her daughter and by Jan Chosen Bays. And they give a little bit more background about her, even things that I didn't quite know. So, um, so I, I really encourage it. She, her practical wisdom is unmatched. Yeah. And thank, thank you for um, bringing me to her. Hmm. She, she really loved you. Well, we, she put on lipstick for me. She did. And I had never seen her in lipstick. Until I showed up at her front door with flint and toe, and there she was in her pink lipstick. We we had a nice um, flirtation. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. So, yeah. thank you very much, Peg. I appreciate your willingness, even just in the last few minutes, to hop on and help us and tell the story. So I didn't have to just read it. <laughs> I will. I'm going to screen share something. Um, because it um, reveals the, some of what Peg was just talking about. <clears throat> uh, this is a moment that Peg captured when we were at lunch one day. We had gone from the Zendo and we were... And it's interesting that there's sort of the movement out of focus of Joko, which I adore because I show it to you because you feel the contact between us. But even at, I, she was around 90-ish at this time, she was so full of life. And, it, and it, you get the feeling, I think, of that vitality uh, because she was still um, inquisitive, wanted to know things, wanted to learn things. <clears throat> so this enlightenment bit that she's pulling the rug out about I just want to make some some comments it's not a it's not a thing but in some ways that aliveness itself it's not a noun it's not a steady state. In fact, if this thing that you think about enlightenment, what Peg wrote about in, in terms of that thing that's just out of reach that we're trying to, to move toward, it's completely incompatible with the Buddha's foundational teachings of, and, and what we awaken to, the reality of no independently existing self and everything being impermanent. So how could there be a permanent thing called enlightenment that you could have? It's that aliveness. It's a, it's a verb that our practice is enlightening. It's awakening. It's liberating. It's freeing. It's aliveness functioning. It's emptiness dancing. And one of the things that Joko uh, emphasized and I think taught us and helped us, even though we might know it, realize it more deeply. Um, this is something that she had some public statement about it. I don't think I'm revealing too much. She said she had some d discouragement about some of her senior students because they would lose contact with her. And the aliveness of transmission has to do with ongoing practice. It's not, it's not something that gets handed off and now you have and you take away on your own. 
it's an alive function. It's, and it's the same for us. That's why I have Peg with us. That's why we bring in these teachers, even though they're not embodied any longer. It's why the uh, brilliant innovation that Peg introduced in our chants of including the interpersonal and the universal, because it extends our aspirations to the fullness of this aliveness that you see in that picture with Shoko. And so when she says, I hope I should never have such a thought, because he asked, are you enlightened? As if there was an individual person that would attain a steady state that was different than him. But that brings up what's next. I'll talk about that. But this is the vitality, the aliveness. A second piece to that has to do with when a young student, all of us, we project things onto the teacher. Another image. You're seeing the chair? Yes. Okay, good, thank you. That's Joko's chair in the Zendo. And I took this picture at her memorial service because she, she would never sit in it again. And it was just sort of a poignant moment. Peggy and I walked down there, you know, by ourselves. But boy, you can project a lot of things onto that, can't you? And there's no one there. And this is in some ways what <clears throat> what we do even when there is someone sitting there, probably even more when there's someone sitting there. And what gets projected often is a kind of a perfectibility. This, um, this longing, are you really, are, are you, are you what I'm looking for? Are you the thing that's out of reach? Can I become like you? And students will ask these questions because they're the sincere questions that Peg wrote about. This thing that's just out of reach. We're longing for it. We want it to be embodied so we can see it and feel it, but also so we can kind of hold it. I remember once going into Dokusang with Blanche and uh, I was talking about the quality of fearlessness. And it's one of the few times that she was very sharp with me. And she, and she, instead of saying, I hope I never have a thought like that, she said, never think of me as fearless. You can project that, she said it, you can project that onto the Suzuki Roshi or anyone else you want. Meaning, I, I'm with you. And sometimes these questions, like the young man's question, was a challenge for the teacher, a test. And this is what we do. We often play out our old family patterns of authority, our anger, our longings, the things that I mentioned last time when Rosemary and I were talking about her psychoanalytic training, you know, these are the things that come with transference. And, but it's deeper. And it goes 
to a profound existential place in spiritual practice. Is anyone going to protect me or save me? And are you that person? And even deeper, the question points to a deeper place, which is, does anybody know what's going on? Do you know what's going on? Do you understand this thing? And there's that deep longing. So in that simple response, uh, are you enlightened? I hope to never have such a thought. But instead, maintain that aliveness. And to deflect and use the transferences, the projections, and the longings as uh, the pathway. I'll tell two small stories uh, before I ask you to raise your hand. One is a, an old story from the Lotus Sutra, and one is one of Joko's stories that, that map onto each other. And some of you know the, the one from the Lotus Sutra, which is called the Parable of the Phantom City. And in this parable, um, in the, the sutra, they talk about a caravan leader who's taking this large group of people toward this wonderful city, which they're all going to be thrilled to be visiting. Apparently, there's no pandemic, so they could all go together and do some traveling. And um, they reached the city finally, and they rested and kind of caught their breath. And, and the leader said, okay, now that you're rested and you're refreshed in this lovely city, um, I have to tell you, uh, this isn't a real place. This is a phantom city. And this isn't actually our destination. Our destination is much further. But I knew if I told you that when we started the journey, you wouldn't come with me. And it would feel like too much. But now that you're refreshed here in the phantom city, uh, you're ready, so let's, let's go further. Let's continue. It's, it's a really um, a beautiful truth about practice, if we're, we're honest. I loved saying that and seeing Catherine laugh. Because would we go along if we really knew what was being asked of us and what it would take from the beginning? We wouldn't even understand it anyway. But there are other things in life like this having children, parenting, graduate school, recovery from cancer, social action in the face of very daunting odds, surviving a pandemic. And the Buddha taught a direct path of meditation, ethical conduct, or right effort. But you know, it's all been there from the very beginning, but we haven't always understood the teachings in their, their fullest sense. We want the gold ring we think of as enlightenment, as it's, if it's an achievement we could own, or claim, or use. But the path is actually endless, as we spoke about last week in Blanche's comments, and it's inexhaustible. And an inexhaustibly liberating practice is what's called for as we meet inexhaustible delusions. They match each other. 
And that's where the vitality arises. The essence of this journey of the path is compassion. Wise compassion, caring for everyone and everything, including yourself. And there's no real rush because actually everybody's coming along together. Everybody's on the caravan. I'm, I can't go along by myself. And neither can you. Where I am going is together. The together is where we're going. And this is the vision I think we need now. How could we even think about practicing so we can get liberated from the world? If you, if you could free yourself from your own personal suffering by sitting hours and hours and hours on a cushion, how does that make any sense in the, in the contemporary world? But if you can sit in order to connect with and support everyone in the whole world, including yourself, because you're not separate from it, And if we do this together, then there's a, a tremendous sense of, of confidence that begins to develop. The confidence that was in Joko's comment. The confidence that she showed in us when she said, oh, you're going to do the talk and you're going to do this thing. The confidence that I ask when you, I say, raise your hand. We have this vision. We have a way of proceeding. And this is an ongoing, enlightening conduct and liberating intimacy and our thoughts about enlightenment are a sure sign that we're far away from being free. And there's one last little bit that's really Joko's version of this story, which is in the last chapter of Every Day's Zen, which is the parable of Mushin. It's her version. And I won't tell the whole thing. It's, it's beautifully written, and I would suggest that you go read it. Uh, but I bring it up to say that the way she tells the parable is like there's a young man who's wanting to, her imagery analogy is catch the train of enlightenment. This is, I especially love this one in England, you know, because we catch trains in England a lot more than we do in the United States. And you stand on the, the side waiting for the, the train, and he would keep waiting for the train, and it would like whoosh by. It wouldn't stop. And the story goes on and on about how he ages and he hangs out and he keeps trying and he tries harder. Other people show up. They want to sit with him just like people did with me and Peg. <laughs> I guess they figured this was the train stop, you know. And people, more and more people showed up. And then they had kids and people needed some food and a place to sleep. And, you know, more things developed. More. And he turned his attention there instead of to the train. And one night, this is Joko now. She wrote, one night, for some reason, Mushin thought, I'm going to sit all night. I don't know why I want to do it. I'll just do it. For him, sitting was no longer a question of looking for something. Trying to improve, trying to be holy. All those ideas had faded years ago. For Mushin, there was nothing except just sitting. Hearing a few distant cars at night feeling the cool night air. 
enjoying the changes in his body. Mushin sat and sat through the night, and at daybreak, he heard the roar of the train. Then ever so gently, the train came to a stop exactly in front of him. And he realized from the very beginning he'd been on the train. In fact, he was the train itself. There was no need to catch the train. Nothing to realize, nowhere to go. Just the wholeness of life itself. All the ancient questions that were no question answered themselves. And at last the train evaporated and there was just an old man sitting the night away. Zemushin stretched and rose from his cushion. He went and fixed morning coffee, or tea if you're in England, to share with those arriving for work. <clears throat> and the last we see of him, he's in his carpentry shop with some of his, the older boys building a swing set for the playground. That's the story of Mushin. And she says, what was it Mushin found? I leave that to you. And that brings us to our inquiry. Where are you now with these questions, these stories, these things that are brought forward in our practice? <clears throat> I just wanted to say that's not um, apropos of your story. I just wanted to let folks know that Today is the day that Maria's daughter is having her surgery or has had her surgery, has been having her surgery. So um, lots of you know Maria from um, hosting here at Inquiry. And so I hope everyone will send Meta for her daughter and her well-being and recovery. That's it. That's our, that's our function. That's our function. <laughs> Thank you. What's being called forward? I'm Joko's voice saying, okay, it's your turn, step up. <laughs> Rosemaria, I can always count on you. <laughs> I hope that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> um, so what I was thinking about was um, that with art and with Zen, um, it can be intimidating to um, be in the presence of great teachers, great artists, great writers in Zen as well as um, literature. And um, that is something I was reading in the precepts um, today. Um, I'm not sure if it was about treating people on following the path of treating people on evil ground, but um that in um in in seeing such a separation between myself and the teachers and the great artists that's exactly what it is it's it's separating it's separating and by um the thought was by um connecting i guess and feeling part of a, a lineage part of a um you know a legacy i guess you could say um, that was pretty freeing. So, You're yeah. also talking about uh, the courage that it takes to overcome our everyday conditioning, which is just 
And we get to see the story we create. The story of I'm less, I'm different. You know, one of the things that every great spiritual teacher, every great psychotherapist that you know, every great artist that you know, they had the opportunity uh, to do the same practices we're doing. They didn't do other things or special things. They did, if you're going to be an artist, you have to be in the studio and learn and, and produce and create. If you're going to be uh, a spiritual practitioner, then you have to engage the practices that are offered to you by your teachers. It's, they're all the same. They didn't do something special. But then we think, well, but they're special people. But actually, every one of them has a body and parents and families and history and troubles and exactly the same things to work with that we have to work with. And everything we do to make those separations is suffering. Thanks. I One other little thing that in, when we were sitting and you were big on the screen and, you know, I, I'm big too in my place where I am here. And it felt, it felt private until I realized, well, everybody else is having the same Flint, you know, experience. And it was a nice, it was a nice partnering feeling. Good. As well as a communal, communal situation. Uh, uh, just a moment when I was in London, um, years ago, actually doing a memorial service for um, Carrie, one of our wonderful Sangha members who had died. And, and uh, Trudy said, you know, Marina Abramovich is doing um, one of her live art pieces, you know, at museum there. And so I was able to, to go. And one of the things that she offered among many things in this installation was a room where basically it was like walking meditation, back and forth this long room and she would walk with people and hold hands and just walk and it was a beautiful example when I was here's a person that I'd seen and admired and held up as this amazing artist and she just would walk next to me silently and trying to demonstrate no separation That's why we Thank did it. Yes. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. Hi. When you were talking about um, the story of the Phantom City, I was just reminded of our gatherings in Madison. And we would be together for several days and how nervous I was when I first came and unworthy and all that kind of thing. And then as I came back a second and then a third time, I remember thinking so distinctly, oh, I kind of got the hang of this now. It's really, oh yes. My comfort level was just so much. And then that very day, you changed something quite distinctly. 
And I remember being so angry. And I think I even told you and probably wagged my finger at you. I'm sure you did. <laughs> and, you know, I was just, I mean, I, I was groundless. And it was a terrible feeling. And I was just kind of thrashing around for, for what to do. And then I finally just began to relax into it. And then over time, I realized, yes, this is just um, life in front of our very face. And the idea of just, oh, well, I wonder what's going to happen coming to me thinking, yeah, I wonder. And some of it was hard, some of it was, was easy, but didn't make any difference because everyone there was supporting me. If we got into small groups, um, if we were in large groups, didn't, it didn't matter, it was just, but I so distinctly remember that feeling of well, you got to see one of the areas of suffering that you carry with you where you're going to be caught. Yes. In Tibet, what's it called? Shinpa, the hook. It's like, oh, I want to be comfortable. And if mm -hmm. he changes my comfort level, he's messed things up. Instead, well, that's true. instead of caring about you enough to help you learn to navigate things that are always going to continue to change. Well, I'm very glad that wasn't your answer when I brought this up to you because I would have said, what a liar. I'm smarter than that, you know. <laughs> I'm sure glad. And then the second thing, um, yesterday I went to the um, exhibit Beyond Van Gogh. Mm. And it's actually a, the, it has to be done in an absolutely immense place because they project Van Gogh's art onto the wall. And, you know, when I first got there, I thought, I don't know about this. Mm, you know, this isn't the real stuff. <laughs> but then all these pictures would come up. And sometimes, one time it was just all self-portraits of Van Gogh. And then suddenly you're looking and the eyes blink at you. And if there were flowers, you'd see them and they'd be just as gorgeous, you know, super gorgeous because they're not only on the walls, but they're on the floor, they're everywhere. And then they begin to animate them and flowers come out and come around and go around everywhere. And I just kind of, <laughs> when you were talking, that all came to me and I thought, that's a bit like our practice, isn't it? You know, that there we are, we have something we know about and it's, we love it or have a feeling about it. And then suddenly the whole thing starts to move and change and, and you know, the reaction is like, oh, wait a minute here. And then suddenly phew, you can go with it. Yeah, the switch between a thing and the alive energy that you're in. Yeah. And it was alive. <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> oh, you're in Cape Cod. 
How do you know? Well, the obvious, and I can tell those <laughs> that forest and those that kind of it looks like the houses I stayed when I teach it up there. So I am here, and I it makes me um, have a very fond memory of being here with you and Aaron many summers ago. Yes. Um. And I also just came from the ocean and I didn't realize how disheveled I look until I looked into Zoom. But um, I, I know this is a place where I can come as I am. And um, the, it was really nice to see you and Peg up on the screen together. And y'all were positioned on my screen the way you were at a um, intensive, well, the way you always you, well, I think you almost always sat that way at, at Appamata in Austin. And um, the Dharma talk or the talk you gave reminded me of this one session that was based on improv. And y'all really had us get up and respond to questions kind of in this very alive, standing on our feet, improvisational style. And it was really exhilarating and challenging. And I can't remember exactly how it went that I stood up in front of the two of you and the rest of the folks in the in the zendo and I we had just done the meal chant and that line about I want to be free from clinging was really stuck in my head and I was feeling how much I wanted to I wanted to be free from clinging well, the line wasn't, I want to be free from clinging, but it was something about being free from clinging. And I stood up and I said, I want to be free from clinging. And then Peg said, um, and I'm sorry, I know I'm paraphrasing you, Peg, so I'll probably get it a little askew. But um, it was it was something like, well, that I is your ego that's actually keeping you from being free from clinging. And, um, and it just reminded me of how we can, my question is, how can we honor that me that was so excited to get an answer to my question of how I could be free from clinging and the desire to be free, and also how I trip myself up by wanting it so bad? And um, so I'm wondering how you hold both at the same time. Is my question clear enough? Yeah, I was just thinking, you hold both at the same time. And the one who holds both at the same time isn't either one of them. You have this Say one. Say that again. You have one that desires to be free of clinging, and you have the clinging. But you're you're seeing and appreciating both of those. Who's that? That one's free of clinging. Yes. Yes, but I I notice that I'm clinging all the time. Um, so you're noticing all the time. That means your freedom, your liberation is with you all the time. But you keep identifying with what you look at. Wait. But what you were saying about teachers and projecting things onto teachers, I, I, I know all that and I do it. I know. But I also needed Peg to say that to me. Like I needed a teacher to make me open up and yep. um so do i that's why i appreciate you raising your hand because if you don't come on and speak and ask these kind of questions i don't get to we don't get to in in embody the dynamic vital activity that you saw between me and joko 
That's what's important, not an answer. There's no final mm. resting place. There's aliveness. Sometimes we cling. And sometimes we hate the clinging. And that's all in a space that's free, that we rest back into, and that we sit with, and that we remember. That's a lot of what bud, the root word for enlightenment, has something, is like remembering something. A lot of times the clinging part seems to be so big that the, that other part doesn't really have enough space. The one that is holding it isn't a part. Oh, okay. There are competing parts. That's what one that <laughs> is clinging, one that doesn't want to be clinging. That whole dynamic is held within a space that is non-reactive, doesn't move, has no preference, is completely present all the time. It's like the movie screen. It's receiving. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get caught in the story. All it is is a perfect reflection of what is there. It doesn't get old when the characters get old. It's just, it's just there. And that isn't all of us, but the all arises within and passes away in that. And so we sit. But we're lucky we have teachers to, that y'all so generously let us project, project so much onto you because it'd be hard to do this on our own. That's my experience with my teachers and my students. We're all in this together. We just play different roles in the enlightening activity, which is available to us all the time. Well, thank you. And um, thank you, Peg, for striking me like that that day in the, in the session. I appreciate it. Thank you for your continuing to return over and over and over. Margaret Keyes, I know you wanted to um, come up next, so I'm going to spotlight you. There she is. I have to unmute. Oh, we got the idea of our clothing today. I know. <laughs> we did, didn't we? Um, it took the train to get me to find the little hand thing that was fixed in. So it took me a while. And then I was going to be shy. And then the train pushed me to the front. So here I am. Um, I love what Clayton said, and I love, because uh, part of me has just experienced this whole clinging to my role in the family, uh, which you know, and uh, it's all kind of come to a, a wonderful spot in me in terms of thinking that healing was always holding on. It was clinging to the family, clinging to the idea of family, that I could have something to do with gluing it together with some kind of crazy glue. And finally, I was able to step away for the first time that I could see real healing as stepping away. And something has happened. Uh, I can get tearful about it, but mainly I am kind of giddy 
uh, I don't know how else to describe it. I think that probably has something to do with feeling unburdened and feeling more alive and able to move, kind of like the energy that's released. Yes, that was clamped down. Feels uh, in, so invigorating. It totally, and I'm thinking of what Sue said. That I'm so image driven that that just landed mm -hmm. uh, right there. Um, and in our family dynamic, the thing I've always been scared to. Uh, let go are the children that I kept thinking, well, if I let go, the children are doomed. You know, there was just that feeling. There were so many of them. And what I'm aware of is that I've now drawn the line with one family member in a kind and loving way. I didn't have to, you know, slam the door, but it was clear. I took out my fierce sword that you told me to use. And then I've now been able to do it with the mother of my favorite great-grandchild. And, and I feel even liberated there because she's old enough now, A, but it's, it's just so intriguing to keep learning at, you know, I'm in graduate, graduate school and I'm almost 80, you know, it's just, that's the part that is hilarious. Well. Like I said, that was my experience with Joko at 90. She was saying, show me this, show me more. Exactly, exactly. But I'm so appreciative of your demonstrating in a very vivid way and sometimes the stickiest way. You called it crazy glue. Crazy is the glue of the family. Exactly, exactly. That you could step back and still care as much as you've always cared. There's no lack of care, but step back from what can't be done. Yes, and that's what I think I finally, after, you know, five grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, two children have, have finally realized, I mean, many, many lessons. And that's the liberating part. That's the Van Gogh part. Maybe we'll call it the Van Gogh syndrome or something. There you go, that's, that's a little bit. Clint and Peg, I, I'm with Clayton in terms of seeing the two of you sitting there in front of us um, my heart was just so full and right before we did the meditation, I had already kind of had that image of us globally sitting and that was so strong. So this was a huge gift today from both of you and from the Sangha and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mara. Thank you. I see that Efrat has her hand raised. Hi, I'm having problems. Can you hear me? I can hear you. We're right, right here at the end, but I didn't want to leave I you. Know. I just wanted you to include the Mediterranean when you cast your uh, web. Are you in Israel? I'm in, Is I'm in Israel. I'm sitting on the hospital floor, um, on the hospital stairs. I came to see my stepmother who was somewhere, somewhere around the end uh, that, you know, who knows. And I just wanted to say how, um, how present I feel and how happy I, I was that I had you all when I came downstairs and 
could sit in the, on the stairs at night, watch the people go by. It's amazing. So thank you. It is amazing. Uh, where in Israel are you? I'm in Jerusalem. And I arrived and had to go through all the COVID tests, but I, I made it through everything and got to see her today. So good, good, good. It's a big deal. And we got to see you. And I'm so glad that you let us be with you and we can you can be with us. Yep. Many Thanks so much. To your family. Thank you. Who knew this could be possible, you know? Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you, everyone all around the world. Jessica? Thank you, everyone. Your contributions uh, mean so much and support the aliveness of Apamata in this community. So thank you. Um, there is a link for contributions on the website at apamata.org. Um, and you can make a contribution right now, a general contribution, a contribution to any of the teachers, Flint and Peg, and also right now to um, Flint's Dharma transmission uh, efforts, which are ongoing. So thank you. Um, and please stay if you can. Uh, Rosemary will be leading the charge for after inquiry today. <laughs>